You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. Here on Mr. Open Banking, we often emphasize that what makes open banking so different, so important, is that it has to do with our money. Opening up access to financial data is a major part of open banking. Freeing up data so that it can be shared and reused in powerful ways is one of the most exciting things about open banking. But opening up access to financial data is only part of the equation. Open banking starts to really get interesting once you add the power to move money. Payments, the ability to move money from A to B, is the other big part of open banking. Initiatives around the world are taking a close look at how we move money to those we buy from and to each other, both locally and around the world. Often these initiatives are closely tied to broader open banking efforts. In fact, most open banking standards include a payments API. On this episode, we aim to explain payments, a rather arcane and often misunderstood space. It's a story that involves not just open banking, but cryptocurrency, central banks, and even Facebook. But we'll start at the beginning by trying to explain what an electronic payment actually is and what the current payments landscape looks like. So, settle in and join us as Mr. Open Banking explores the ever-evolving world of payments. Our guest on the show today is Nelixa Devlukia, the CEO of Payments Solved, a regulatory consultancy that focuses on payments, digital banking, and fintech. A lawyer by background, Nelixa has made some major strides in driving changes across the banking and payments ecosystem to help make it more secure, transparent, and inclusive. Nelixa has even worked with the European Commission, the European Central Bank, the World Bank, the EU, and several other regulators across the globe to evolve the payments landscape. Welcome to the show, Nelixa. My pleasure to be here. Payments isn't exactly a subject that people talk about at parties. Why don't we start with the basics? What exactly is an electronic payment? Well, I think I have to say that I'm probably the person at parties that does talk about payments. And I think that before we actually touch on the subject of electronic payments, we need to take it back a little bit and think about the fact that we've always needed a way to pay and a way to barter. And whether that's been with the evolution of shells or coins or paper currency or checks, there has always been a need for people to give value and receive value. And in the societies that most of us live in today, often the most easy way of giving and receiving value is to make an electronic payment. And all that is, is a payment often from my bank account to your bank account. It doesn't mean that really money flows from me to you, because these are just sort of ledger entries that are held by my bank and your bank. But it means that I have given value and you have received value. So what's different about 
how we do electronic payments today versus how we've done them for the last few decades using credit cards. Credit card payments, debit card payments have obviously been around for a very long time. We're all very familiar with the ability that we go into a merchant, we take up our card and we make a payment. And whether it's a card payment or a bank payment, consumers don't need to know how those payments actually work. What they're interested in is that they do work and they're safe and secure and that the money gets from my account to your account in a safe manner. The evolutions that we've seen in payments over the last few years have been the speeding up of the payment cycle in that in the UK, it's used to sort of take maybe three days for a payment to go from my account to your account. It would be debited from my account. And then about three days later, it would arrive into your account. And we had regulatory change that actually required money to be sent and received in D plus one, D being the day I send the money, plus one being the day you receive the money. So if I send on Monday, you receive on Tuesday. But we've actually seen payments that move faster than that. In the UK, we have faster payments. In Europe, they have tips. In America, they're about to have FedNow. And so there's a lot of jurisdictions around the world that have faster payments. And they are pretty much either real-time, near-real-time. I can send money from my bank account to your bank account, and you will see it instantaneously. And you will have that money then available to spend. And also, card payments are not always person-to-person payments. They're primarily person-to-business, person-to-merchant payments. And the card rails across the globe are primarily in the hands of the two large card schemes, Visa and MasterCard, where they are global payment systems, whereas interbank payments primarily are are national The faster payment system is UK-based and the one in Singapore is Singapore-based. They're not global in the same way as the card schemes are. Let's help fill in some blanks. What exactly do you mean when you say rail? A rail is the infrastructure, the plumbing. It is that critically important infrastructure that provides those connections between all the parties that are within either the card scheme networks or the interbank schemes. So if the rail is the physical connection, the infrastructure, what is a scheme? The scheme is the set of rules that everybody has to play by. It's the rule book. That's obviously important because you need to be subject to the same requirements, the same scrutiny, the same oversight, and be subject to the same sort of requirements that if I send you money, it gets there in the time it's meant to get there in, and the rails facilitate that, but the scheme will also support the participants in the event that something goes wrong, because they will have rules that govern not only the well-functioning participation of members, but also to cover situations where things might go wrong. Let's recap. Payments, fundamentally, are about exchanging value between two parties. Electronic payments make this exchange faster and easier, more convenient. Thanks to technology, notably the modern internet, moving money is getting even faster. 
with the ability to send money instantly becoming the norm in many regions. These payments flow over what are called payment rails and are governed by payment schemes, like the ones from Visa and MasterCard. So how exactly do these payment schemes operate? And do the schemes govern how the different players get paid? Here's Nalixa explaining how it works. Interbank schemes will generally have a joining fee. And then within the card schemes, there is remuneration in the way of interchange, which is the payment that flows between merchants and issuers and has been the topic of much scrutiny in many jurisdictions across the globe. Can you describe for our listeners the card scheme, the one we're exposed to every day via Visa and MasterCard? Visa and MasterCard are the schemes and the rails in which merchants participate in order to be able to accept debit and credit card payments. Historically, there has been a charge levied on merchants that is paid to the issuer. It has been the subject of scrutiny in the EU. It's the subject of the interchange fee regulation, where there has been a view that these charges are too high. It's an ongoing debate, but there is an important question there when we talk about fees and interchange and scheme fees and even interbank fees, in that this is all, if you accept that payments are important, critically important infrastructure. We know from the outage that happened with Visa a few years ago in Europe, the impact that had on everyday consumers who were not able to make credit and debit card payments from their accounts and weren't able to go and buy their groceries, etc., etc. I think it's important to note whatever views there are out there on interchange, there is a cost to running payment rails and payment infrastructure and payment schemes. And how that should be managed and apportioned is a topic for much debate across the globe. Fascinating. So the card companies are making their money via interchange fees, essentially a charge levied for participating in the scheme on the rail. Can you describe the scheme in detail, the card scheme that is? So generally, card schemes are thought of as four-party schemes. The four-party model is such that I'm the consumer I want to spend my money with a merchant. I use my card. My card has been issued to me generally by my bank. So within that setup, the bank would be the issuer. And the merchant needs an ability to accept the money that I want to give him via this card payment. And so the merchant will have a relationship with an acquirer. And so the four participants there are me as the consumer, the merchant, my bank as the issuer and generally the merchant's bank as the acquirer, the international card schemes then sort of sit above all that, providing the infrastructure, the scheme rules, the dispute resolution mechanisms. So that's a typical card scheme. There's one aspect we'd like to explore a bit, and that's the difference between paying by card, paying contactless, and then ultimately paying through biometric schemes like Apple Pay or Google Pay. Why haven't cards been eliminated already? 
if I use my card in a store, I physically put it to machine or I tap it as contactless. I'm still using my card. When I have added those card details to my Apple wallet or my Samsung wallet or whatever other wallet provider I may be using, the money is still going from my card. The fact that it's just a digital representation of my card is the functional change, but it's still a card payment. There's no switch there to an interbank payment. There could be going forward as PISP services evolved and as functionality evolves. It could well be that I can swipe on a barcode or a QR code and it takes an interbank payment. But today, the functionality of all of these things is still based on your card number in effect. Payment schemes, an appropriate name. Today's schemes are essentially pay-for-play networks. To join them, you need to pay a fee, an interchange fee, a percentage of each transaction that flows across the rail. Visa and MasterCard today control the vast majority of electronic payments, effectively giving them a monopoly on these interchange fees, since ultimately they own the network. As the owners, they get to decide on the size of the moat. Now, as Nilixa says, there is indeed a cost to run the rails, but thanks to technology, that cost continues to be driven down, reducing the justification for erecting moats around the rails. While Google and Apple with biometrics may make the process of paying easier, they don't really do anything when it comes to democratizing those rails. While the user experience may seem advanced, the plumbing is still based on the good old card scheme. Along comes open banking. Back to Nalixa. Open banking introduces another player into the ecosystem. So within open banking payments ecosystem, you have payment initiation service providers, PISPs. What PISPs do is sit between me and my bank account, and they will have a relationship primarily with the merchant so that If I go onto a merchant website, I might see a logo that, you know, pay by card, pay by PayPal, and pay by PISP. And what the PISP does is provide a challenge to card payments, because a PISP payment, as it is structured today, is an account-to-account interbank payment. They were introduced into EU legislation as a means of bringing innovation and competition to the market. We do across Europe and in the open banking ecosystem in the UK, see payment initiation service providers, but they are still at a nascent stage. We're not seeing as yet huge volumes of PIS payments flowing across the payments ecosystem. Because in the UK, we have faster payments. The benefit to a merchant of taking a PIS payment is that it can be a lower cost associated with that because merchants, if they're taking card payments, are subject to various charges from their acquirer, interchange, merchant service charge, whereas an interbank payment could well be cheaper for them. But I think as we have the interchange fee regulation in the EU, there is no analysis of this, but it's possible that PIS payments maybe are not as cheap as they might be compared to the costs of card acceptance in other jurisdictions. 
So there is one incentive for merchants to adopt PISP or PISP payments, and that's lower interchange fees. But they still don't seem to be doing it in high numbers. Is part of that about consumer adoption on the other side? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. People pay with what they know generally. There's nothing yet that has caused the PISP hockey stick moment. But I think there's also a challenge there in that the open banking ecosystem is not yet fully formed and doesn't support necessarily PISP payments in the way that it could. Because if you think today, primarily, if I'm doing online shopping, I use a card. But if I then need to get a refund, there's a way for that money to come back to me. In the open banking ecosystems as we have them today, that functionality doesn't exist. So it's not an easy method of payment for a consumer. Even if it's easy to technologically make the payment, I'm online, pay by piss, I type in my security information so the money can go from my bank account. I know if I make that payment that if I need to return an item, I'm not going to be able to get my money back in any easy format. So I think there's more functionality needed in order to drive consumer adoption of PISS payments. So you're saying there are actual functional gaps in open banking payments as they exist today. Beyond the ability to do returns, are there any other major functional gaps you can think of? For payments, I think that it's very limited. As it stands, they are basically single immediate payments. I see something, I want to buy it, I make a payment. I can't use PISP services to make variable payments or recurring payments. I couldn't use that PISP payment mechanism to, let's say, set up my gym membership or a subscription because those types of payments could vary in amount and frequency. And that's not available within the open banking ecosystem today. Once all those functional gaps are worked out on the open banking side, do you think there's a threat to the existing card schemes and card issuers? Personally, I don't think there is. But I think that's because the card schemes themselves are evolving. If you look at what's happening across the globe, you look at the visa acquisition of Plaid, you look at the fact that within the UK, MasterCard has an open banking offering. I think that the card schemes are multifaceted and want to play in all aspects of the payment space. And therefore, I think that as this ecosystem evolves, the card schemes themselves are going to evolve. So you don't really see it as a battle with only one survivor left standing, so to speak. You see a world where the existing card schemes and rails can coexist with open banking equivalents. Absolutely. And I think that's necessary because at the end of the day, this isn't about the winners and losers in the card schemes or the interbank schemes. It's about consumer choice. Do you think that those choices will at some point become invisible or will I as a consumer always have to pick? I want to pay by PISP, I want to pay by card, or I want to pay by something in between. I think that's the million dollar question because I don't think it's always obvious or known to consumers that there is a difference in protection. So as 
card schemes enter into open banking and as open banking participants bring along functionality that maybe looks and feels like a card payment, it's going to be difficult maybe for consumers to understand the differences. And I think that's going to cause some challenges for consumers and for businesses and also for regulators. In the open banking future, how are consumers going to choose how to pay? Will they care? Will they even have to choose or will an algorithm choose for them? The mystery doesn't end there. So far, we've talked about the tried and true card schemes and we've talked about open banking. But there's also a third option, a way that really does completely reimagine the very idea of money. Cryptocurrency. This third way to pay only extends the mystery, adding a radical twist that draws in not just consumers and banks, but social networks and global governments. That's where Nelixa and I picked up our conversation. Cryptocurrency has taken the world by storm over the past decade. What is the relationship between cryptocurrency and payments? Payments is all about a way of exchanging value. And cryptocurrency is a way of exchanging value. I think, though, that the challenge that we know and we've seen with cryptocurrency is that it doesn't have a stable value. Because of the fluctuation that we know exists in cryptocurrencies, I think that as a payment mechanism, they've pretty much stalled. And so then we've seen the evolution of mechanisms that provide stability to the value of the currency, which go by the name of stablecoins. The most obvious example of that is Libra. Facebook's Libra, an attempt to provide its billions of users with a way to send money to one another. Why not? What's the risk of accepting something like Libra? When the first Libra white paper was published, I read it and I thought, oh my God, Libra have basically just told the entire financial central banking system, you're not needed. And obviously, we've sort of seen the fallout of what happened as a reaction to that white paper. But what Libra has done has drive that conversation of, How can finance, how can payments all be done better with, I think, a more consumer-centric approach? Can you describe the fallout? There was obviously a lot of central banking interest. There was, as I recollect, meetings with Libra at which I think 26 central banks were present. And then obviously there was reaction from jurisdictions within Europe. I know that France was very vocal in saying that they would, in effect, ban it. So it created a lot of noise, but it also created, I think, this incentive for central banks and other regulators to stop and think and say, actually, within our own domestic systems, we improve payments, but there is a global aspect to this. We all travel The world gets to be a smaller place, but yet sending money from one country to another is often still very expensive. What Libra was proposing was at near zero cost. Maybe Facebook is right. Central banks are ultimately organized around states, whereas cryptocurrency 
is global. Likewise, payments aspire to function globally and allow you to move money between any bank. Are central banks outmoded? Oh, I very much doubt that. And I think central banks themselves have really looked at what they need to be doing to move forward in this space. If you think the the Bank of International Settlements has innovation hubs in different sectors across the globe, if you look at the initiatives that are happening in Sweden, Singapore, Canada, UK, all of these central banks and many more are looking at the concept of central bank digital currency, whereas obviously a cryptocurrency doesn't have that guarantee. You could call it a cryptocurrency, but I think its preference would call it a digital currency because it's the same as my pound or my dollar. And so it doesn't have that fluctuation. Cryptocurrency stormed onto the scene and shook up how we think of money. But as a way to actually pay for things, it didn't quite work because it was just too speculative, too volatile. We've all heard the story of the $100,000 pizza bought with Bitcoin. So along come stablecoins, which support the value of the currency through stable assets like gold, oil, and even national currencies, all in an effort to keep the convenience of crypto for payments, but lose the instability. The most famous of all stablecoins by far is Facebook's Libra, an attempt to create, in effect, a global currency. In April of 2020, Facebook published the second version of the Libra white paper, a thorough document explaining exactly how their system would work and cost very little. Well, this was more than the central bankers of the world could stand. After all, creating money was their job. So they started writing reports of their own, responding to Libra, promoting an entirely new idea. Central Bank Digital Currencies, or CBDCs. Elixir and I talked about one of those reports. Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of England and a proud Canadian export, recently wrote the foreword to a report from the Bank of England about this technology. Can you summarize what the report said? Absolutely. The Bank of England published a consultation setting out its thinking on issuing a central bank digital currency and the reasons why it might do so, which would be financial stability, monetary policy, competition, innovation. But it also, within that document, highlighted factors that the bank needed to take into account if the bank were to move to this issuance of a digital currency, because there are different ways of doing it. It could be done directly by the bank, so directly from the Bank of England to me, but that would put the bank in the position of, in effect, having consumer relationships, but it's not really what a central bank does. So. The other option is that you have a two-tier system where the bank issues the currency to the commercial banks and the commercial banks then have the consumer-facing relationship. It asked about technology. There's an assumption that if you have a central bank digital currency, you have to issue it on distributed ledger technology, but that's not the case. You could issue a CBDC and use existing payment rails. There's the question of interoperability. Do you build a whole new 
set of payment rails and infrastructure? Or do you build something that will work on the existing rails and infrastructure? Or do you make it interoperable? So these were all the sort of things that the bank was looking to, and it was looking to input from industry to get a view on how it should think about progressing work on CBDC. If the governments of the world move towards CBDCs, doesn't the cost you mentioned of running that payment rail effectively get driven to almost zero? Is there really room for existing card rails and schemes to exist? I think that there's always going to be different ways of making payments and transferring and exchanging value. I think that where we're going to see a focus going forward is around the cost and value of cross-border payments. And I think that the Libra White Paper really shone a light onto that area of the payments ecosystem. The CPMI, under the umbrella of the G20 Saudi presidency, published a paper about the 19 building blocks for improving cross-border payments. And they set out the fact that this is stage two of a piece of work that will have a follow-up in October. And they are looking at the relationships between central banks. They're looking at compliance requirements. They're looking at data flows. They're looking at how payments go from cross-border to domestic payments. They're taking that whole cross-border payment ecosystem and putting it under a lens with, I hope, a view to being able to introduce changes that are going to benefit everybody across the globe. And the driver for that, of accelerating that conversation, was absolutely the Libra White Paper, because the Libra White Paper said, basically, we can do this for next to nothing. And we can help people send and receive money. And we know from all of the data that exists already that quicker payments do drive better user outcomes. Accessibility to finance drives better consumer outcomes and better social outcomes. And therefore, there is this whole virtuous cycle that comes into being if you can accelerate the time it takes for money to flow across the globe. Libra is not the only way Facebook is trying to enter the payments game. They recently introduced WhatsApp payments in Brazil. Shortly thereafter, the Brazilian government suspended their license for review. Part of the reason was the open banking regulations that Brazil announced very recently. Is open banking ultimately on a collision course with payment rails introduced by companies like Facebook? I don't think so, but that is only true if you follow this principle of same activity, same regulation, in that if you are a payment provider, whether you're Facebook or a bank, and you in effect, have accounts for customers where they store their value, then if you think about what happens in open banking, those accounts have to be accessible for open banking payments. And I think that as this discussion about alternate payment mechanisms and alternate payment rails evolves, 
there has to be this lens of same activity, same regulation, same supervision. So to paraphrase, you're saying it's not that the Brazilian government wants to stop WhatsApp from enabling person-to-person payments. It's that if WhatsApp is going to play in Brazil, they have to follow the same rules as everybody else. And I think that's right. I think if any of these big tech firms want to be in the financial services space, then they actually should, in my opinion, step up and be regulated as if they are a financial services provider. They shouldn't try and benefit from current loopholes and gaps in the various regimes. That's not in the interests of consumers at all. There needs to be maybe a mindset shift. This is about people's money. It's about their livelihood. It's about their ability to pay for their groceries. So I don't think that anybody should be allowed into that sphere if they're not going to accept the responsibility that comes with that. Excellent. Lots of exciting activity happening in the payments space. Maybe I'll start talking about it at parties too. What does the future payments environment look like? The future payments environment for me would be one where my bank didn't give me pages and pages and pages of terms and conditions and just said, Nalixa, we're here for you. If it goes wrong, we'll sort it out. Nalixa, thank you for being on the show. I'll thank you for the invitation. It's really been a pleasure. Where can our listeners find out more about you and the work you're doing? They can find me on LinkedIn, Nalixa. I'm the only one I think that's on LinkedIn under that name. And they can also contact me at nalixa at thepayregexpert.com. Payments, the ability to move money from A to B. Although a little dry, make no mistake, payments is one of the most critical pieces a complete open banking ecosystem. After all, if you can't move money around, then how do you enable trade? The good news is, we're really good at moving money around, even electronically. Thanks to credit cards, we've been enjoying electronic payments for decades, albeit for a fee. Open banking is trying to change the game. By creating an open standard around payments, open banking aims to make the movement of money seamless, effortless, and as low cost as possible. Instead of depending on proprietary networks, it leverages the ubiquitous internet. Instead of passing payments through a private scheme and rail, it passes them bank to bank, removing the middlemen and their requisite fees. At the same time, entirely new ways to pay are emerging. Cryptocurrency stable coins have ignited a battle between banks, social networks, and global governments, a battle for the future of money, as they debate the rules of who is allowed to move money and who is not. Our guest, Nelixa, is happy to welcome all players, as long as they follow the golden rule. Same activity, same regulation. So whether you are a central bank a massive tech giant, or a two-man payment startup in a garage, you all play by the same rules. And may the best way to pay win. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.